Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was there nothing worth fighting for? We are called to find something in our lives worth fighting for. Curdles my womb dry. These stories. Girl parties in Steubenville. Watch her drink. Watch her pass out. Watch them grab wrists and ankles. She is now a rope. They jump. Three girls. No. They're women now. Ten years chains in a Cleveland basement. Did each one give thanks when he skipped her? When he visited that one? When he got her full of stillborn baby? Baby girl in Gretna, Louisiana, stuffed into a garbage bag. Show me her mother, how she clenches her fists. It seems we women must practice how to lose our daughters because I know the boys who will help me carry grocery bags and then will whistle, will whisper, will crook fingers in my daughter's direction and she may flip her hair. She may buck her hip. She may accept their invitation to chill behind paint chip staircases. The cheap vodka may burn her throat, but not how they will later when they become more thrust than thought and you can't tell me that they don't know that her no is not a moan when she wakes me her bed puddled in piss i will scrub these hands raw I will tremble at what they could not prevent. So I have to hold every smile of my future daughter tipped up to the milk of this promise. She will not walk hunched. Fingers playing with one another as if she can wring prayers from the sweat between her palms. My daughter will not be a girl forced to turn herself into a corner. Taught that her body is a place to huddle, hide. I won't raise her to be nice, to give her laugh away. To smile polite as men plot and plan to turn her body into a weapon of war. And if they try, she will know how to wield herself. Don't tell me it's wrong to want to raise a child in this kind of fear. I know for every finger that we loosen, another knuckle grows back crooked. Another knuckle is looking to crack into my daughter's skin. And I can't trust this world to teach their sons how to treat my daughter. So I will raise her to be a sword, a shield, a spear, to turn class tens into heated hatchet. To hold razors between her teeth, to cut unkind advances with the sharpest eyes. To hold all of this together with leather or lace, to be chiseled, prepared for rebellions against her flesh. My daughter will be carved from hard rock, Sharpened, sharp, no, a spear, whole body ready to fling itself and arrow the hand of the first man who tries to cover her mouth. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That was a recording of Elizabeth Acevedo reading her poem, Spear. I'm Blaine Harrison from Mystery Jets, and this is episode three of our podcast, Things Worth Fighting For. I hope wherever you're listening to this, you're keeping well and managing to stay sane. During this slightly surreal and difficult time, we're inspired to create a safe space for amazing people from different backgrounds to share stories of activism and to shed some light on some of the biggest conversations of today, many of which have inspired the songs on our new album, A Billion Heartbeats. I'm speaking to you today from Mystery Jet's basement studio in Clerkenwell, London, three months into lockdown, and the theme we're talking about on today's episode is female role models and gender equality. You may very well be asking yourself what place a man, me, has in a discussion about the female experience. Well, sort of. The dictionary says a feminist is someone who advocates social, political and economic rights for women equal to those of men. It may sound obvious, but I think this bit's quite important to point out. Women's rights are human rights. So I would argue that both women and men can be feminists. This isn't just something that should concern half the people on the planet. There are, of course, times when male voices aren't wholly welcome within the discussion, and on occasions, many of us get it wrong. But perhaps it's important to get it wrong sometimes, because maybe that's how we learn. Surely by having the difficult conversations, we educate ourselves and begin to recognise what it means to become a more useful ally to the opposite sex, calling out discrimination when we see it in our friends, family, co-workers, but most importantly, in ourselves, accepting that as men, we individually may at times have been part of the collective problem. And that problem, of course, is called the patriarchy, or as Grayson Perry calls it in his book, The Descent of Man, the Department of Masculinity. It's a system as old as history itself, designed by men in positions of power to maintain their dominance in society. To examine it, we need to look little further than the fight for equal pay in the workplace, the marketing of beauty products, representations of female sexuality and culture, conversations around abortion rights, gender roles in parenting, and good old-fashioned catcalling. Tracing the word back to its Greek origin, patriarchy literally means rule of the father. If, like me, that makes you think of Darth Vader, then destroying this thing understandably sounds like a gargantuan feat. A bit like blowing up the Death Star. But I would argue that just by questioning it, and in doing so, acknowledging its existence, we're already well on the way. My journey with the conversation we're exploring on today's episode really began in January of 2017, in a small town called Sedisfjorda on the northeast coast of Iceland. I'd booked myself a month off to explore the country in search of new songs and a clearer headspace, away from the constant grind of living in London. One afternoon, I was hiking up a glacier and saw that for the first time in a few days, I had some bars of data on my phone. Checking in with friends on social media, I saw my timeline had become flooded with images from the Women's March in London, Paris, Berlin, Tokyo, and across the whole of America. And all of this, the day after the most notoriously chauvinistic public figure in modern times had become the elected leader of the free world. It was the largest single-day protest in US history. Heading back to the guest house I was staying in, I felt a sense of conflict. Here I was in this serene glacial wonderland, surrounded by nature, 
Yet all of a sudden, I recognised a strong force pulling me home. History was happening in the streets, and I knew I needed to be there to witness it. Back in my room, I began working on a new song in which I wanted to celebrate the strong women who have been a guiding force in my life, as well as the sense of pride I feel seeing friends of mine with young daughters instilling those same strong values in them. The name of that song was History Has Its Eyes On You, and you'll get a chance to hear it in its entirety at the end of this episode. Elizabeth Acevedo is a Dominican-American poet and author from Washington, D.C. Coming up through the slam poetry scene and spending time working with incarcerated women as an English instructor, she's gone on to become a New York Times best-selling author and recipient of the National Book Award for Young People's Literature. I stumbled across her work when someone shared a performance of her reading the poem you just heard, Spear. I was gripped by the passion in her voice and touched by the sentiment of writing to both her future self as a mother as well as to her future daughter, warning of the injustices and violences of a world she has not yet been born into. She said the purpose of her poetry is to elevate women's experiences into stories so as to allow them not to be forgotten, whilst also longing for a day when they'll become dusty artefacts in a museum no longer necessary in an equal world. Another powerful voice belongs to the guest I'm about to speak to. Our guest on today's episode of Things Worth Fighting For is a 21-year-old artist, influencer and soon-to-be-published author, Florence Given. Florence is perhaps best known for her bold, slogan t-shirts and designs addressing issues of sexuality, race and empowerment. Dump him, offer a shag, and stop raising him, he's not your son, are all messages which have appeared in her work, making powerful statements on role models and gender politics in today's complicated age of social media. Unlike some of the episodes in this series, which were recorded face-to-face before lockdown times, my conversation with Florence took place through a screen, and therefore was subject to the occasional glitchy gurgle, but thankfully she kindly recorded our chat at her end too. I hope you enjoy our conversation and I'll meet you on the other side. Florence, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so we so we were going to chat at the end of last year, but I know you've been incredibly busy with the book. Yeah. It's now done and it's I think by the time this goes out, it's going to be out in the world. But actually, just before we talk about the book, I, I want to ask you the question that 95% of the entire population of the world is asking each other at the moment, which is, how how are you coping with with the situation that we're in? Um, yes, I, I've actually been really well. I've been I'm really good at distracting myself, um, but in a way that is not avoiding my emotions, because that's not something I like to do. I like to feel my feelings. I like to process them. Um, I'm still going to therapy on FaceTime um, weekly. I'm making sure that I am consistently checking in with myself, but also um, kind of avoiding the reality of what's going on outside. And I've been going on bike rides. I actually have a lot of social anxiety. So um, the fact that there's not a lot of people on the streets means I'm able to go on bike rides and not feel overwhelmingly anxious about street harassment and stuff like that. So mm. that's great. <laughs> Do you know what? I can really relate to that because I live <laughs> I live in, in central London, but I can definitely relate to the feeling of suddenly when you've got the street to yourself. And I think this probably especially applies as women, you know, like there is, it's a whole, yeah. dif- it's a whole different, you know, sense of freedom and, and not, not being Absolutely. surrounded by judgment and all these things. Yeah. I've not, I've not um, ridden a bike in London since I moved here two years ago um, because of that exact reason. And it was like this huge internal barrier that I wasn't even aware of until there was all of a sudden absolutely no one on the streets. So that's been incredible for my mental health and for me just like getting out and um, seeing London in a way that I've never seen it before, not just because the streets are dead, but because I'm riding a bike. So that's been really <laughs> instrumental to me kind of 
being okay with this. I'm also a, a massive introvert. So this time alone just feels more like recharging of my batteries. I imagine this is really hard for people who are extroverted, who need the energy from other people. It does get lonely, absolutely. I miss my friends. I miss physical touch. I miss hugging people, yes. all of that kind of stuff. And I think that does contribute to how you feel. Um, I mean, like touch deprivation has a link to depression. So mm. it's going to make people feel um, lonely and stuff. And I'm also allowing myself to feel that way. I'm allowing myself to honor the fact that this can be lonely. It's been about, it's, yeah, it's been like two, two and a half months, is it? I don't mm. freaking know. Like, yeah, about that. <laughs> it's been in it. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting thing that you said, which is that allowing yourself to feel lonely. Because I think so much of the time we are, you know, we're chasing fulfillment in so many different ways, aren't we? And actually yeah. sometimes we almost need to validate the feeling of of being down and being depressed and to, ex- and to be accepting of that feeling. Yeah, especially me, because my message is to encourage women to feel happy being single, right? But there, it, there are dualities to every every experience. You know, I am so happy. I've been single for over a year and a half now, and I'm using this time to intentionally demand better for myself. I've spent a life of people-pleasing, of being a fucking doormat to everyone Mm. and the minute I realized that I'd been um you know abuse is never your fault but when you realize that um you have a say in how other people treat you you know you tell people how to treat you and you you don't have to put up with certain remarks or certain certain things that people throw you away when I realized that and that the answer to um better treatment was for me to assert myself which I've been so afraid of my whole life because I think as women we're encouraged to not be a bitch or to be assertive Mm. all of that kind of stuff when I realized that I was like wow I need to be so intentional with who I spend my time with now and who I date and who I'm friends with and um yeah so that that's what I do with my work is I'm encouraging women to to rather be single than stay in a toxic relationship for the sake of having a partner you know and I think the normalization of uh, abuse in relationships is romanticized we see it in tv series and films mm. and for a lot of people it can be um they'd rather be in a toxic relationship than no relationship at all mm. so i do champion being single a lot but i think it's also important to acknowledge that yeah i mean i'm single and i live on my own so because of that i am going to feel lonely and i do miss physical touch and that's that's okay to feel mm. and being in a big city like london as well my friends live bloody everywhere like there's no small community of people that everyone's just kind of spread out. Um, and I think it's really important to talk about um, the importance of loving your own company, which I do, yeah. but also you do need human beings in your life. Like that's how we live, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I suppose just talking about being single, because I know it's something that, you know, you engage a lot with, with in your yeah. art and in your work. I mean, I suppose that there, there's perhaps this sort of social societal assumption that being single is a temporary thing rather than a choice this idea that we're waiting for the perfect partner or we're waiting for the right situation the right time but I think your your take on this is really interesting I know I've heard you talk about it yeah yeah so being single is the art of not lowering your standards to fill a hole in yourself right it's different for people depending on um their perceived desirability I have so much privilege being white slim um cisgender and I'm able-bodied so I have so much privilege in that my dating pool like the options for my dating pool are a lot wider um, than other people and it's really important to acknowledge that people don't like to talk about pretty privilege or this kind of stuff but it's real and I'm treated better just for existing in the body that I am and it's important to acknowledge that so it's all good me saying um, you know, being single is a choice. For some people, it is harder to find a partner, perhaps because of where they live, because of their ability or class privilege or all this kind of stuff. But whoever you are, just the state of being single, it's a testament to the fact that you're not settling. Yes. Um, because, do you know what I mean? It's like, mm. so for a while I viewed it as this kind of, um, yeah, this like you're thrust into the state of being single and it's like, shit, I must get out of it. Even everyone else around you acts like they need to help you get out of it. It's like, oh, I can set you up with this person. Mm. And especially queer, like so many of my friends will say to me, um, oh, I've got this friend who, like, she's gay. Or, you know, and it's always kind of like just because two people are queer, it's they assume that we'll get on. Or all this kind of stuff, it's very, it's forced upon you to get out of being single. Mm. And I hear this, I don't actually feel that urge in me at all. I find more pride for myself at this point in my life anyway, in being single and demanding better for myself and saying no to things that aren't good for me and with dating apps there are so many options and there are so many times where 
um, I've been faced with old patterns or I can see myself falling into um, something that isn't healthy for me. Mm. And it takes starting yourself and saying, you know what, I deserve better than this mm. to not fall back into those patterns. Um, because that same yeah, that no, same sort of sense of validation that you know we're all familiar with from social media exists in online yes. dating as well, doesn't it? Absolutely, it's it's so it's such a quick, fleeting sense of that you mean something. I've written about this in my book that I often grab my phone if I was feeling low and open up Tinder. When I realised that I did that, I just literally watched my arm grab my phone, and I was like oh my God, that was like my knee-jerk reaction. I'm mm. feeling low right now. My knee-jerk reaction was to get validation that mm -hmm. I'm desired. And I think that also speaks a lot to how women are taught to um, view themselves is that if they are not desired, they are not worthy. Yes. And a lot of my work is about encouraging women to know that they are valuable simply because they occupy their bodies, not because of how their body looks like, but because they and their own minds occupy their bodies. Therefore, their body is valuable. And yeah, there's just, there's so much messaging around being single that's so negative ourselves. You've described your book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, as a book for young women yeah. trying to determine feminism on their own terms. Yeah. Unfortunately, it wasn't out um, at the time of recording this, but I did have a scan over the chapter titles. And yeah. the title of the penultimate chapter in the book really interested me. Feminism will ruin your life in the best way. I yes. absolutely lo I love that sentiment. What do, oh, you, what, do you, what do you mean by it? Okay, so you imagine we're, we're currently swimming in all of these narratives that we are told about ourselves and about other people our entire lives. And the more privileged you are, the more you're blind to the toxicity that you are enabling, the toxicity and privilege that you benefit from, and also the stuff that is affecting you as, an, as a person as well. Mm. And I think the more you become aware it's so fucking uncomfortable because you're literally unraveling your entire identity. It's so uncomfortable. That's why I say it's going to ruin your life. It's going to ruin the way you see things. It's going to ruin your friendships because you'll realize, holy shit, I've been in low-key abusive friendships or I've done some abusive behaviors or I've permitted stuff. And you kind of cringe at your past self. And that is so uncomfortable. But you've got to use that cringe as a catalyst for growth. And that is why I say feminism will ruin your life in the best way possible. Because you're going to have more enriched friendships as you let go of ones that do not serve you and come into ones which enable your growth. You can't watch films that you enjoy anymore because you're like, holy shit, this is the reason why I view myself this way because women were betrayed like this my whole life growing up. Mm. Everything that you love becomes so uncomfortable. I can't, I can hardly listen to some of the Rolling Stones music anymore because it's so disgusting. Mm. And it's like the, the things you once loved um, become the things that you realise aren't normal, but have been normalised. And yes. there is so much discomfort in that realisation. I find that really interesting because in a way, the models of masculinity and femininity change with every era. And the way that we yeah, view ourselves, even society's view of what's beautiful changes with every yeah. era. And obviously, like in the age that we're living in now, this kind of information overload age, there's so many questions yeah. and there's so much to navigate through. I think it's so cool that you've managed to channel that in, you know, into a book, which is kind of a manual for someone your age yeah. or younger or older who's who's trying to find oh, a path. Oh, absolutely older. Yeah. 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 So I'm 21. But a lot of women who are in their 40s or older message me constantly that they have reflected on their entire marriage because of my work. That is powerful as fuck. And it's because the narratives that they consumed were passed down to them from their mothers. And actually, a lot of the time, it's such a privilege to even be able to examine your life. And it's such a privilege to be able to sit down and go to kind of reflect, you know, because a lot of people are, are stuck in survival mode. A lot of people, especially marginalized people and people of color, they are living to survive. Mm. Uh, working class people are living to survive. They don't have the privilege of sitting there and going, oh, is the way that my relationship with my husband, am I actually raising him like a, like a son? Mm. Or is this normal because, because women do the housework and men go to work, right? It shouldn't be a privilege because no one deserves to be in these awful, outdated, archaic relationships. Yes. But it's also important to acknowledge that some people are living in survival mode and they don't, they're not thinking about even escaping because they do not know of an alternative. And Gloria Steinem uses this narrative, um, sorry, this analogy of it's like being a fish in water, like a fish is not 
aware of an alternative to water because it's surrounded by water. It's not thinking of being an alternative the same way women in abusive relationships don't know of an alternative to abuse. Um, just to come back to what we're mm. talking about, this definitely would appeal to older women as well. And men, oh my God, because this book hasn't been written for men, mm. that is exactly why they should be reading it, right? Because it's not been watered down. It's it's not been made palatable for the male gaze. It's my experiences and experiences of other women entirely unfiltered. So for that reason, I think men should read it, but it's going to be uncomfortable Absolutely. I've never written a book before, so I have huge respect for you. You know, but obviously I do write songs and one of the lyrics from one of the songs on on our new album is called History Has Its Eyes On You. And the lyric in the song is be who you needed when you were younger. Absolutely. And I think really what what I wanted to communicate with that was that so me and my sister were brought up um, partly by my mum. I, who was single at the time um, in yeah. in rural France, and I felt quite strongly that I wanted to write a song celebrating the strong women I had around me growing up, who have both been yeah. huge huge role models in my life. And I mean, would would I be right in saying that with this book, it's almost the book that you wish you'd been able to read when you were younger? Oh God, for those yes, role oh my God. yes. I wish I could whack this book over my head when I was fourteen. Um, in fact, the, the introduction to my book is a conversation between me and my 14-year-old self. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, like obviously an, an imaginary conversation. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, that was really important for me to do because it gets the reader to learn. Okay, so the reader may be reluctant to a lot of the concepts and a lot of the experiences I discuss in my book because they are so earth-shattering in terms of your perception, Right. It can realizing that something you have been doing for your whole life isn't normal, but it's 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 been normalized and it's mm. actually toxic as hell. That's really uncomfortable. So the introduction of my book is a conversation between me and my fourteen-year-old self. So it's like me talking this person who's my fourteen-year-old self through the the understandings of what I'm trying to tell her about prettiness and about this need and niceness and the male gaze, and I'm mm. explaining this uh, concept to her and you, you see this person coming to terms with it right so all the questions someone might have about what is the male gaze and women don't have to be pretty they just do it because they like to no one's forcing them to do this and then I explain actually no no one is forcing women but we know that we're gonna have a much easier life if we do this stuff mm. so you know it, it talks talks the reader through it and that, that was really important for me to do I basically yeah I am writing this book for young women especially because I want to introduce the concepts of boundaries before they have to experience it the hard way Mm. and that was what it was for me I had to learn through awful experiences that led me to go to therapy you know and it's like I want to get women introduced to the the red flags um and even like how to engage in sex and I was never taught any of this stuff I think and, and it's just so important to get it in before they learn the hard way and then they have to learn about boundaries, you know? And I think, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a book that I've, um, I wish I had when I was younger. It would have saved me a lot of uh, awful traumatic experiences. I don't know if this is sensitive for you to talk about. It probably is. But I understand that you had some bullying at school, which I can relate to you know, as anyone, yeah. as yeah. anyone with something unusual about their appearance or their name or whatever <laughs> will know, other kids will always find a way um, to minimise you and isolate you for yeah. being different. Mm-hmm. I mean, h- how did how did those experiences when you were younger shape your, I suppose, your worldview and perhaps your your um, you know your your means to find a way of expressing yourself by making art. Yeah, I think, oh my God, the whole thing ties into being bullied at high school. It was, um, I was in a really awful, it was like a codependent, abusive friendship where essentially it's the, I hate to be the stereotype, like, but it was a classic, like, if you've seen Mean Girls, it was like, you know, you had the ringleader and then I was like her, her friend who was just submissive, silent, did whatever she wanted, blah, blah, blah. Then she found out something about me that I was going through and I could find it in to her and she told the entire school and then isolated me Mm. and it was through that isolation and the bullying that followed 
that I found myself because I was forced to face the fact that I had been, I basically didn't know how to exist without trying to meet the needs of other people. Mm. And so because I was forced to be, I was 14 years old and I was like reading books on mindfulness and meditating and taking myself for walks and realizing, holy shit, I have so much more worth outside of serving another person. Mm. And it was my GCSE art course, um, my te- my art teacher, Mr. Varrell, he showed me a fashion illustration book. Um, and I didn't know that you could do a bloody GCSE in art that wasn't like painting roses or some shit. Mm. And I was like, wait, you mean I can like draw women and get a GCSE in art? And he was like, yeah. So he showed me this fashion illustration book and it was these uh, this fashion illustrator called Julie Verhoeven. Um, and she drew women in this really abstract way, like wonky tits and like huge heads and large hair. And I just started to um, make art. And I used to just, that was my outlet. It was making art. And then when I went to, uh, when I left that school finally and kind of escaped that atmosphere, I went to art college and started to channel my political messages into my artwork and made the stuff that you see today. Then I got um, into London College of Fashion to do fashion styling and production. Um, And I still, I had my Instagram account. It was very small at the time. I was just putting my shit on the internet, shouting about sexual harassment and all this kind of stuff that I felt was really important, but none of my friends validated my experiences, right? Mm. So I would be going out to the nightclub and um, when I turned 18 and be constantly harassed by men. And I felt so such discomfort with it but my friends were telling me like no like it's a compliment like what what else are you getting dressed up for like you should be liking this and there was no one validating how I felt about it so when I started putting my work online and found that there were thousands of other women who were like holy shit so I'm not I'm not crazy for not liking this this is actually disgusting and like like boundary pushing behavior from men that we're experiencing oh great so then I started putting it online and then I moved to London and I did one year at London College of Fashion. Then I dropped out. Um, and that was a year and a half ago. So I dropped out of uni a year and a half ago. Um, and I'm in, the, I'm I in exactly the same boat as you, by the way. I went, I went to art school. I did an art foundation. I, I started a degree. Oh, really? Dropped out after two terms. <laughs> yes. It's, um, I, I enjoyed it, kind of. Like, I, I love purpose. And it gave me purpose. It helped me re- move up to London. But... I knew that I was onto something with my work and I fully just decided to take the leap and drop out um, because I just believed in what I was doing so much. I mean, I'm interested in that, you know, in this idea of a fire, because I think some of, you know, some of your work, I'm just thinking about, you know, stop raising him. He's not your son or, (laughs) or, you know, offer a shag, something like that. You know, some of these slogans which have gone viral in your work. I mean, do you get that sort of sense of a fire when you stumble across something? Do you have a feeling of this is going to connect with people? Um, No, I really do not. So So is is it um, instinctual? It it connects with you first? Oh, absolutely. And I don't release something until I've processed it. So, I mean, offer a shag, that's just how I talk. Like, my slogans are all just kind of these like tongue in cheek. I was bored of seeing this wishy-washy people kind of like wishy-washy feminism where it was like, people would just be like, love yourself and not really giving any kind of, okay, but loving yourself involves accountability and you're in a shit relationship with a man, but also you need to hold yourself accountable for, for like not raising him like a fucking child. Why are you doing that? Maybe think about why you need to give this unreciprocal love and why you don't expect anything in return. You know, no one's, no one's telling women that a lot of the reasons they don't, don't love themselves is because of capitalism or is because we're in it's an intentional thing that we all shave our bodies because men wanted to sell more razors in the 1920s before that women didn't even touch their body hair and it's it's about educating women and informing them with this knowledge so they can make a decision about okay do i shave my body because i like it or is it this idea that actually um doesn't even belong to me how much do you think your work is directed at yourself you know the messages in your work and how much is is written for other people because I'm interested in that as a songwriter because when I'm when I'm writing a story when I'm writing a lyric elements of that are me there's parts of me in that sentiment that I'm trying to communicate but I'm also part of what I do and I think what you do is storytelling there's a narrative which you're communicating via your work and how much of that is you trying to um I suppose enable people to empathize with the message 
I think I'm always talking to the past version of myself, always in my work. Oh my God, like I, wow. I need... Needed, I needed to stop raising him. He's not your son. I'm, this is what I mean. Everything I do is like I'm shouting it into the ear of the person that I was a couple years ago. And also for the parts of her that still exist in me today. You know, I am still I still have elements of me that are a people pleaser. I still find it so hard to um, assert myself in certain situations. And I still write some of the honestly, when I was writing my book, I would often refer back to my own chapters to give myself a boost to remind myself of who the fuck I am. Mm. And it's um, it's it's often this form of I feel like everyone has like a higher self, right? Everyone has it's not um another figure, it's not a god that I don't know if you're religious or whatever, but I don't believe in God and all that kind of stuff. Um I appreciate it, but I, I do not. And I don't worship I don't like the idea of worshipping this man. It feels very patriarchal. Mm. I feel like there's um this people pleasing version of myself that I used to be and this higher version of myself that says no when she wants to and asserts herself in situations where she needs to speak up. And I often feel like I'm in this transition period of being in the middle of those two versions. And so sometimes my work, my own work, does um, connect to me and empower me and is a message to me to remind myself that I don't have to go back to that old person just because it makes other people feel comfortable or because they're used to that version of me. Let's talk, let's talk about um, influencer culture because I'm I'm interested in that. You know, you talked about how, how you're 21, and I mean, having built up such a huge following at that age yeah. is is quite unique. You know, at the t- I think at the time of this interview, you've got 352,000 followers on Instagram. I mean, yes. what kind? <laughs> that's you know, that's quite astounding. I mean, what what kind of pressure does such a position of influence bring? Yeah, I think it can, it it has the ability to um, put a lot of pressure on myself, but I don't allow it to because I'm very good with my boundaries with it. I, oh my God, the amount of messages I get, Blaine, a day from people asking me for advice for, and it's such intimate kind of advice that these people are asking me for. They're telling me their entire life story. I don't answer a single one of my messages and that's one of my boundaries. I don't, I'm not an agony aunt, I'm not a trained therapist. And also I'm not being paid to do this. This is, this is free labor that people are asking of me to kind of just dedicate my life to their problems. And that's a boundary that I have. And it's without that boundary, I would be exhausted. I, I don't have control over how people react to me. Like you said, it's their projections. And with Instagram, God, it's like so quick. People, you put something up and people don't even take the time to sit in their thoughts and reflect. They will project that shit back onto me and tell me I'm an awful person for talking about abusive relationships because it makes them feel uncomfortable. And it's like, yeah, maybe you need to think about that. <laughs> why, why does it make you feel uncomfortable? It's not my fault. I mean, I think just speak, I suppose just speaking about social media, this something that we're all familiar with to a certain point is this, you know, the popularity contest of social media that, that has this yeah. huge influence over our sense of self, our self-worth. Yeah. You, you know, there's 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 this figure that in, on an average day we scroll through an Eiffel Tower's worth of posts. Oh, my God. You know, ho- holidays we're not on, bodies we'll never have, parties yeah. we're not at, relationships we're not in diets we're mm. not eating and I think to, to a certain extent we're all complicit in that structure to a point to varying degrees of yeah. addiction or or supplying that content yes. and, I, and I think your work engages with that in a really positive way you know all of these themes I think which feature so heavily in your work you know mm. as we were talking about there's diet shaming there's domestic abuse there's trauma there's victim yeah. shaming male gaze privilege consent all of these worlds I think coalesce in your work but I know you've spoken about you you dislike this term activist I'm interested interested in that because I think I think the messages in your work really do you know empower your audience and they ultimately do work towards changing attitudes in in society but what is it about that term that you that you don't associate with it's not that I dislike it I I actually just prefer the word advocate right I I like to I'm a, I'm a political creative. I'm a political artist because I don't like to discount the. It's you know I'm I'm an artist and I do writing and art, but that is um it's very different to people who dedicate their whole lives to this and are working in domestic abuse shelters and and although we're doing the same kind, I'm raising awareness and I am empowering women in the same kind of way. And although that could be similar to what 
um, other women are doing, whether they're physically helping or emotionally helping women, I like to use the word advocate. It makes me feel more comfortable to use that word because I feel like activist, I don't feel that what I do is um, activism. I think it's advocacy mm. and kind of, yeah, it's, my work is fucking powerful and I will never... Um, kind of undervalue the work that I have done because I do believe in its power I see its power every single day and I believe in the power of my words and my art um one of the things that was interesting as well is a lot of people like to diminish or uh what's the word patronize my work because it is very feminine mm. and that's actually what I like most about what I've been able to do is I've not had to compromise within my art like it's very pink and it's very very feminine I've not had to compromise my femininity to make an impact you only have a few seconds to get people's attention so my work is very provocative and it's very eye-catching. And that in itself is like a sugar-coated pill. It's like, if my work was just like black and white words, like stop raising him, he's not your son. If it was just like white words on a black thing, people would not be engaging it in it the way that they do so viscerally with my artwork of women and my bold fonts. And I think that has such a, a huge part to play in my message and um, how it's gone so viral. I think that's so interesting. That that's just just what you're saying reminded me of um, Grace and Perry's book, The Scent of Man. Yes, um, yeah, I've read it. Yeah, th- there's a really powerful bit in that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing. I don't, I wouldn't know the quote exactly, sure. but essentially he's talking about in order, you know, in positions of power, in order for a woman to to be taken seriously, she needs to wear a suit. She needs to adopt the uniform yeah. of the strong, you know, powerful Masculine. white male. Yeah, that model. Yeah. And I think what you're doing with your art, it makes me think about that because you're, what you're saying is that actually I don't need to compete with men that are occupying the same space. The I just need that they've to, set, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're not trying to dress your work in a uniform for it to be taken seriously in any mm. particular cultural space. It is it's yeah. a representation of, of, of your colour and your views and uh your personality and i think that's that's one of the most inspiring yeah. things about it i think thank you i mean i'm i'm a very existential person so on a daily basis i'm like hmm how much of my femininity femininity though is who i am and how much of it is just a product of how i've been raised to believe i should be because i do so closely align to femininity right the the role i was assigned at birth i love pink mm. i love um all things feminine there is i'm also leaning a lot more into my masculine as I question these kind of things and I just think it's it's about encouraging women to see that there is no one way that you can exist in this world that you you are literally going to be judged either way um because when men don't see you as desirable um or that they see you as more masculine they you're less seen you're less visible but you're more respected right and when you're more feminine you're more hyper-visible, but you're not as respected as much because you're feminine. And it's either way, I feel like women rarely have the opportunity to experience being seen and heard at the same time. Mm. Um, And what I love is that I've been able to create a space where I am seen and heard and validated by women. You know, I'm I'm a five foot four, blonde, 21-year-old woman. I could not enter some kind of corporate scene and be respected in the way that I am as an influencer or as someone on Instagram who gets to tell people who I am before they make assumptions about me. And that is the power of social media is that especially for marginalized people and trans people and fat people and disabled people, they get to tell their own stories before being assumed of who they are. They don't get to be stereotyped, although they will be sometimes, you know, I'm always stereotyped if you just take like one look at me or my image people would never think that I talk about the things I do or that I or that I am an outspoken queer woman even I'm always assumed to be straight and it's um all of this stuff you that's why social media is great because you get to tell your own narrative I suppose what that's what that's making me think about is something else you've talked in your work is this is the concept of internalized misogyny so that it's this kind of silent killer in in the feminism mm-hmm. movement, um, because there's this kind of misguided belief that there isn't enough room for all women to be celebrated in society and cultural spaces yeah. without tearing each other down. Um, and I think you made, and, and I think you've spoken about that, this today, you've made a very interesting 
connection with that and consumer capitalism and the yeah. the you know this sort of um this essentially like the marketing of uh, cosmetics and clothes yeah. to make people to make women feel better about themselves whilst mm. at the same time you know like the media constantly injecting this this um these insecurities into the way yeah i mean your prettiness will be used against you this is the thing it was created prettiness as a beauty standard was created so that women would have this distraction to play with and to bother ourselves with so we're not even thinking about asking for that raise because we're too busy thinking about how we look while we do it you know it's all these surveys that show women don't put their hands up in school because they don't want anyone to look at them in the classroom because we are hyper conscious of our image all of this kind of things self-esteem is everything and if you don't even feel confident enough to assert yourself or to feel like you belong in a classroom that is going to follow through the rest of your life and prettiness as a standard um anyway it's used as this thing that you know women know if you know we don't have to shave our legs we don't have to wear makeup we don't have to perform femininity but we know that if we do we will uh, save ourselves the unsolicited remarks we will save ourselves the um the comments on our bodies we will save ourselves um, and it also opens more doors for us if we look pretty, right? Mm. But then also that prettiness will be used against you to dismiss your thoughts, to dismiss your opinions, and also be used against you to explain and justify your sexual assault. It's, we live in this weird dynamic where you, you literally cannot win either way. You pick your poison. You say, okay, do I mute my authentic self? Do I shave my legs? Do I put on this face of makeup and then be treated better? Or do I be myself and be treated like a piece of shit? So you choose every single day before women get up to go to work or whatever it is, before they're stepping out their door, we, we don't look at ourselves. We look at how other people look at us. Mm. We've got this surveillance inside of us that everything we do is analyzed of how we will be perceived through the lens of the male gaze. Basically, the, the book, I want to lead the reader to the realization that whether they apply prettiness or not, it's going to be at an expense either way. You're either going to mute your authentic self, which can be debilitating. People become depressed from muting their authentic self their entire lives and performing the roles that were supplied to them, or they can perform them um, and be treated better. You know, it's like, it's like, do you conform or do you not conform? But I think as long as you're aware of what you're doing, that's when you, you allow it to not affect you as much, when you become aware of what you're doing and how it's impacting your life. Mm, absolutely you know as an, as an artist as a band like we play a lot of festivals and obviously there is a huge conversation which us and many artists are part of which is equal representation at festivals this this very antiquated attitude of box ticking whereby historically well we've got a female artist on that stage why yeah, do we, we know we've got a female headliner for the friday why do we need another one and and suddenly what you can see is historically how that's become hugely problematic for women in my industry because there is a limited amount of space on these cultural platforms and so yeah, women end up being um, or feeling like they're pitted against one another in order to get the seat at essentially what is a man's table they need to destroy yep. their competitors so it's like the um the, the, this this feeling we talk about of internalized misogyny sometimes it's not even in our heads you know sometimes it you know sometimes we have this competitive competitiveness among women because we are taught to compete with each other you know this feeling that we have about women being competition it's 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 a valid one because there are structures in place which do make us do this with each other. Even the fact that um, so many of my friends who are in bands or who are artists will be referred to as female musician or female artist. And all that does is imply that artist is inherently male. And I catch myself doing this all the time. Because, you know, you'd never hear like this male musician. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's always, it's a, he's a musician or they're a musician. And it's, oh, she's a female musician. Yeah. And it's constantly, I catch myself doing it all the time. You it's, know, like, it's othering. You're othering people of a certain gender yeah yes yeah yeah I mean it's interesting because I you know I, I'm also I'm someone with a disability so I identify as part of the um disabled community in the UK yeah and as do one in ten people I mean it's a huge statistic and I think yeah that's, that's something that you know and the disabled community has felt a lot is that there's this sort of tokenistic view obviously where you know it's it's a minority as opposed yeah, to yeah, yeah. 50% of the population, over 50% of the population. But there is this sort of box ticking aspect to it whereby it's for political correctness. We need to be seen oh God, to be supporting 
And I, you know, I know obviously that's a huge issue. It's so patronising. It's a different kind of othering with the disabled community because it's patronising as hell, isn't it? Absolutely. And it, and it feels tokenistic. It feels like, well, yeah. the society or the media needs to be seen to be making these yeah. people visible as, as opposed to actually working on... Working with them. Yeah, like seeing society as a meritocracy, which is that actually, um, you know... <laughs> people should be should be able to succeed based on what they're bringing to a situation as opposed to oh we need to get this guy in because he you know ticks a certain box this is a box ticking yeah I could talk about this for five hours but I'm not going to yeah (laughs) Um, I suppose like one of the things I'm interested in is Hmm. education you know you've talked about how your book is almost this handbook for your younger self it's just zooming back a few years I mean do you feel like the education was there for you either like in a parenting capacity or like in a school capacity to navigate your place in society or like in a societal group. So I suppose what I'm talking about is gender politics coming into our education. Oh God, yeah, no, I had absolutely none of it. I mean, I learned about the suffragettes when I was like Mm. 13 years old. Um, But even then, you know, we weren't weren't taught about the intersectional um, aspect of that feminism and that black women didn't get very until much later and actually a lot of the suffragettes were racist so we um it, it uh, there was a lot of erasure in the history that I was taught of feminism I everything that I have learned about my own experience and everything that I have had to look to to validate my own experience as a woman has come from me like meticulously ravaging the internet ravaging my resources and kind of finding having to find these pockets you know so that's why I've tried to kind of blow it up and make it as in your face and unavoidable as possible like I need people to be questioning this stuff I don't I don't want women to say anymore why am I in this toxic relationship you know I want women to just know that that's a red flag and that oh I, I didn't know what red flag even meant you know I want people to know that there are all of these tools available to them and I want to make them more accessible. And even, you know, you asked about education and stuff. Um, My parents never taught me about feminism, never taught me about politics or about systemic oppression, any of this kind of stuff. That This was all of um, a search of, like, my own endeavour. Do you think that's right or do you feel like there should be more education in terms of gender, sexuality, sex at a younger age? Do you think that should come from parents? I'm interested in knowing that. I think it should um, absolutely because else you find out and you you can end up inflicting that harm onto other people. We live in a white supremacist society. You end up buying into that idea if no one tells you that it's wrong, right? The, the way that um, people of colour are portrayed in the media, the way fat people are portrayed in the media, you buy into these narratives and then you treat people of colour and fat people as others and you treat them like shit. So unless someone tells you, by the way, you're going to consume a lot of this kind of stuff, but I just want you to know that this is how it is. You know, you need someone to, to poke the hole in the facade that you're about to consume for the rest of your life. Mm. Definitely think there needs to be someone poking the holes in all of the stuff that we readily consume as normal because it's not normal, it's been normalised. And there's a difference. How do you feel that men can be more useful within intersectional feminism in terms of, um, in terms of I suppose, like reverse helping reverse engineer this very outdated patriarchal society yeah. the system that we do that we do live in the way I view it is that it's it's like literally a machine I, I always view it as that oppression is a machine in my head and I refuse to be a cog in that machine that keeps it ticking and I feel like to escape to not be a cog in that machine you have to be holding yourself accountable and the one act of allyship that I always refer to when talking to men about feminism is when I, so I was on a night out um, in a pub. This is like a physical barrier mm. active allyship can do, and it's at no expense of their own. Um, and also without being a savior. So these men were outside the pub. It's like a group of them. And I was stood on my own and it was late at night and I was waiting for my Uber. And these three men approached me at first. I was really intimidated. I didn't know what they were going to say. And I said, Hey, do you mind if we watch you from a distance just to make sure you get home safe? And I was like, I was like, Oh, uh, okay, sure. So they stood about like three meters away from me and they just kind of looked over to check every now and then. Um, I was inevitably harassed by three different men. One guy tried to get me in his car. Um, one guy tried to like touch me. This other guy, this homeless guy was coming up to me and like grabbing me. And all of this stuff was happening to me. And every time 
one of the guys came over and pulled the guy away and took him away and then went back to the spot where they were standing until I got my Uber safely. They didn't want to linger for a conversation, which a lot of men do. They try to make it, hey, let me make sure you get home safe. And they're like, just stay with me and try and chat me into going home with them. Mm. Um, it was none of that. It was, we're going to stand over there and intervene when necessary so you don't get harassed and also not harassing you at the same time. So it was like this, this physical barrier where they, they came in, intervened and also didn't harass me. It, it just shows first of all how low the bar is for men in terms of helping women. Cause I was absolutely blown away. I was like, wow, these men didn't harass me while also trying to mask it with this kind of helping me kind of way. And in terms of um, how men can challenge sexism and, in, in their lives is to call out behaviors. I don't know that's that's the number one thing that everyone always says, but mm. it's so frustrating having to bite your tongue as a woman to kind of protect yourself um, because you don't know what's going to happen if you speak up. So there are situations where, I guess, when, when you're just with your guys and, mm. and they say stuff, it's so uncomfortable. I know that feeling. I have it with my friends all the time, my, my female friends, when they say stuff which is slightly racist, not racist, but like I'm othering. They'll say something and it's like, oh, you can't say that. These people will listen to you. And um, when you're in a position of privilege in that way, um, you do have the power to change the world. Those uncomfortable moments where you feel like biting your tongue but don't, those conversations change the world. And that is, that's my only kind of... Uh, attitude that I would encourage anyone to adopt is mm. to just push through that that need to be seen as this nice agreeable person and just say something because you will change you could your conversation that you have with your mate Brad about consent could literally stop someone from being raped Absolutely. because this um the idea that we even have a rape as a woman being pushed down an alley and definitely that's definitely not how it happens most of the time you know 90 percent of cases of rape are by someone that the victim already knew so you know men want to talk about it yeah, absolutely. There you go. So it's, um, yeah, the, this whole theory of being a nice guy. It's, well, actually, 90% of rapists are technically nice guys. So um, it's about, because they don't know they're doing it. Like, it's this, this we don't teach people the consent. And um, it's this, 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 we foster this culture of um, not knowing what it is. People don't know they're being raped, and then people don't know they're raping people. Mm. So that one conversation you have with your mate to say, you know do, do you know consent do you know about consent like do you know what it is just sending them a checklist like i sent my brother a consent checklist and he was blown away he was like what i did not even know that hmm. so it's about passing on resources and that's all you can do you can't you, you know you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drink so do you think these conversations and codes of consent um yeah. have changed in the sort of post me too times up environment yeah, they, they have changed, but also it's it's creating this resistance. So I've um on a lot of like modeling jobs and stuff, I I don't I rarely actually interact with uh, men who aren't feminists because I don't make that choice. <laughs> so I was on um a job once and there was this uh straight white guy and he was going on he found my Instagram account from being on the job with me and he was like, Don't you think it's a really hard time to be a white male? right now and I was like mate yeah, yeah do you know what it probably is because you're finally being asked to question and interrogate how your actions are affecting everyone in your life mm. and um you know obviously it's not a hard time to be a white male what he means is it's horrible and uncomfortable because I have to be accountable for the ways I've abused women now you know because yeah. people are speaking up yeah. and uh, there's this quote floating around the internet that says something like um you know when you when you come from a place of privilege accountability feels like an attack and it feels like oppression Yes. Um, and it says, it's not. It's simply asking you to be better and question and interrogate your behaviours to... Or, the, or, or, sorry, or the people that have a problem with it, the people who have never been told no. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and have never had a... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've never had a problem with saying no to others either. Mm. Well, Floss, it's been... I mean, this has been such a cool conversation. Um, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, my my girlfriend is is a huge huge fan of your work, and actually, oh no it was, way, it that's was, amazing. Yeah, she'll be, she's I know she'll love listening to this, and she was <laughs> um, she was the one that turned me on to your work and suggested oh, I reach out to you. Oh, good for her, yes, yes. <laughs> so I mean, we have a lot of these conversations, you know, bet between us, and I think I suppose I just wanted to let you know that your work is one of the things that that um, engages conversations that we have, you know. So I think. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, I suppose That's it's cool for you to know that, um, yeah, you know, it's reaching a lot yeah. of a lot of places out there. Yeah. Um, so just before we sign off, I'd like to ask you a question that we ask each of our guests on the podcast, which is, 
what are the three things that you believe are worth fighting for? Okay, my right to say no mm-hmm. and for that to be unchallenged when I do say no. Consent and the uh, universal understanding of consent. Expressing myself and for, for all people, but especially marginalised people and queer people, mm-hmm. to express themselves and have that unchallenged um, and for people to be able to exist in a world that does not uh, encourage them to mute their authentic self. That would be fucking beautiful. Floss, thank you so much. Um, thank you. For giving me <laughs> your time so generously. And I know so many of our listeners will be inspired by the messages in your work and, um, and your book, which is out now. Okay. Go and buy it. And I think also, you know, I think our listeners will really um, take a lot from looking at and seeing where your journey goes next. I think that's so exciting. Yeah, this is um, the first podcast I've done in a while. So I'm, I'm really excited to get this out as well. Oh, good. Well, I think, you know, it means so much to have these conversations. So thank you. Cheers for having me. Wicked. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day, Floss. Thank you. All the best. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to episode three of Things Worth Fighting For and also to both Elizabeth Acevedo and Florence Given for their powerful words. Elizabeth's third book, Clap When You Land, came out last month, and Florence's book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, is also out now. Take a look in the show notes for links and more info. We'll be back very soon with another episode, so stay tuned, and don't forget to subscribe and give us a little rating if you enjoyed the show. This episode was brought to you by Acast and produced by Matthew Twaits. Cheers, Matt. And thanks to Courtney Aisha Mortimer at UROC for all her help and coordination skills. And now, to play you out, We're going to listen to History Has Its Eyes on You. See you next time. Be kind and never quit Cause history has its eyes
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.